1: Hi, and welcome to something a little different from This Is Ibrooks, where we are recording inside the museum at New Edmondson House, and I'm joined by Michael McEwen. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. Pleasure. Um, Michael is the current deputy editor of Bunkered and the author of Running the Smoke First Hand Accounts of Tackling the London Marathon. The Ghosts of Caskin Park, the Inside Story of Third Lanark's Demise, both Amazon number one bestsellers, I was told (laughs) to put in there. Uh, And his third book, what we're here to talk about today, Gallus, Scotland, England, and the 1967 World Cup Final, which is about the iconic game where Scotland defeated England 3-2 end their was it 19 game 19 unbeaten game unbeaten run yes yeah yep. after they won the world cup it's out and available now um firstly michael it's a pleasure having you here how are you doing today very well thank you yeah very excited uh, after all this time
0: researching the book writing the book ninety five thousand words later lots of edits lots of back and forth, lots of emails all that sort of stuff, it's finally out there for people to go and buy and read and hopefully enjoy. So yeah, this is this is the good
1: part. This is the fun part. Yeah, definitely. Well, the fun part for me was reading it, but before we get into the book and talk about it, we were very fortunate to get a wee private tour around mm-hmm. here. What do you think of the setting for this interview? It's
0: absolutely spectacular, I have to say. I mean, I haven't been here before. I hadn't actually been at Edmonstone House until just now. So I think it's a great facility. And it's funny, I think it's... In a weird way, it's quite easy to get something like this wrong. You can just hit all the wrong notes, yeah. but they've got it so right here. I think it's uh, it's amazing. You just walk around with your your eyes wide the whole time. There's so many little nuggets that just remind you of, of times being a Ranger supporter when you were young or, you know, like me now, approaching 40. So it's it, it just strikes all the right notes. And how can you not be inspired when you're sitting with these trophies behind you as well and all around you? So, yeah, an amazing setup.
1: That's exactly. It. And after playing that mini-game with the balls, I'm absolutely knackered <laughs> after it. But listen, we're here to talk about your book, so uh, let's begin with the, the few years into the, the run-up at the match at Wembley in 1967, where the results, England-Scotland, somewhat mixed, Yeah, you'd say, in yep. there. Um, there was that stinging 9-3 victory uh, a good few years before it. Uh, obviously, England won the World Cup, and then mm. there was the backdrop of the SFA Sort of aligning themselves to be more like the English FA, mm-hmm. um, they were ditching a selection committee, the national team manager was, was sacked after a, a few games. Um, how much of a state of turmoil would you say that, that Scotland were going into in the lead up to this game?
0: Definitely a bit of turmoil insofar as I think national pride had been wounded by seeing England winning the World Cup. The fact that we didn't qualify narrowly missing out in the final match away to Italy Mm -hmm. in our qualification that I think caused some upset anyway but then seeing England win it in the circumstances that they did it made I think a lot of people at the SFA sort of sit up and take notice and particularly of the work that Alf Ramsey had been doing Mm -hmm. with the the national team he'd very skillfully created the the club environment at international level and that's so hard to do I mean how often do you ever get your players together? It's not like you see them every day. So he did something fantastic there. Everybody in the team knew exactly what was expected of them. He got a bit lucky as well. No injuries, no suspensions. So he was able to pick mostly the same starting 11 over and over. And the SFA decided, well, if it works for them, Mm -hmm. we'll have a bit of that. But the problem was the first full-time manager that they chose, John Prentice, was, tapped up, if that's the right expression to use, by a couple of teams in the North American Soccer League, which was just starting. And he claims with the blessing of the SFA, he went out there and had some conversations with them. Other people at the SFA said, you didn't really have our blessing. Long story short, he got shown the door after just a few months in charge. And so that was... October September October nineteen sixty six. So England are celebrating winning the World Cup, yeah. and we're back to square one. So it was uh, a, a a bit of a bit of turmoil for sure. There was an interim manager chosen for Scotland at that time, Malky MacDonald, who was doing great things with with Kilmarnock, and would go on to do great things with Kilmarnock that season yeah. in the Intercities Cities Fairs Cup. But Scotland, yeah, we ended the year with no
1: permanent manager in place and a lot of questions about where do we go next? Yeah, so you've led me perfectly onto my next question. You touched on Alf Ramsey, he was a character throughout the book that I found absolutely fascinating. He was a, a real winner, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the guy that I really wanted to talk to you about is, is the Scotland manager Bobby Brown for that game. Obviously, um, he was a successful Rangers player, he was the goalkeeper, uh, I think he won 11 major trophies alongside being a PE teacher, <laughs> which is just something that you would never feel My think PE teacher do. wasn't that good at any <laughs> sport, so yeah, quite amazing. Do you think we could get have being the PE teacher or something like that at somebody's <laughs> school these days? Um, but yeah, he left St. Johnstone to become the Scotland manager after certainly not being the favourite for the job. Mm. How well equipped do you think he was uh, to go into that role and, and to become the Scotland manager?
0: You're right, he wasn't the first choice. I'm not even sure he was the second or third choice. But he was doing good things at St. Johnson, And I think at that time, we didn't need a huge name. We needed somebody who could galvanise a squad of players who had an, amen, uh, an immense amount of talent at their disposal in the likes of Billy Bremner, Dennis Law, Jim Baxter. And then you had other guys there who were solid, dependable, you know, Eddie McCready and such like. So we needed somebody who wasn't necessarily going to walk in, there were tons of swagger and claim to be the Scottish Alf Ramsey. We needed someone who could go in there and have the the sort of charisma to lead that team, but also the, the backbone to stand up to the yeah. SFA and say, I'm gonna do it my way. Yeah. But at the same time as that, retreat into the shadows. So there were three things he needed to do, Yeah. all of which seemed kind of counterintuitive against one another, almost impossible to find,
1: but he did it. So we'll, we'll move on to the game itself, a game at a packed Wembley, low opening the scoring for Scotland with a rebound. Uh, there was then a flurry of late goals, Bobby Lennox making it 2-0 for Scotland, Jeff Hurst, obviously that name's always involved, <laughs> isn't it? In these, always is. When you're talking about these England games, um, and Jim McCallough, McCallough, McCallough. Yeah. I've been practising that name all day and I still couldn't get it right, um, it was an absolute rasper to make it 3-1, and the final goal for Jack Charlton and the game ended 3-2, Scotland became the unofficial world <laughs> champions at the time, what were some of the, the highlight moments, standout moments from, from that game?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's, it's funny because I, I must have watched the game now a good dozen times and it's available to watch on YouTube. Yeah. I highly recommend it. If you have the time and inclination, go and watch it because it's so fast. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's so funny because there are no lulls in play. For example, nowadays when the ball goes out for a throw in, certainly Ibrox tab runs from <laughs> one side of the park to the other to take it. And you know, you you have like those lulls now with goal kicks where the goalkeeper has to, you know, kick his heels off the posts a number of times. None of that in that game. The ball goes out and it comes straight back in. It's, Ange Postacoglu would have, it's probably his inspiration to be honest. But, so there's that in terms of just how fast paced the game is. I think for me, one of the the standouts is the fact that Dennis Law was like a man possessed in like the, the first 30 minutes. You could tell he, he felt the pain of England winning the World Cup. It's funny, actually, there's a, a great little tale in there about Dennis Law. So he felt the pain of England winning the World Cup really acutely. And he actually had to go and play golf on the day of the game rather than sit there and watch it. So then, of course, he goes back and plays for Manchester United, surrounded by people who'd won it, Nobby Styles and Bobby Charlton and, and whatnot. So he was really feeling it. And he's a proud Scot anyway. So if you watch the footage, the first half hour, Dennis Law is a man-possessed, trying to do anything he can to get the ball in the net. And, of course, he he opened the scoring, which was great. There's lots of other funny little moments as well. I think Jack Charlton's injury, (laughs) if you're of an English persuasion, you would say that altered the outcome of the game quite significantly because he was effectively a lame duck. There were no substitutions at that time, which seems... Baffling now, but you would imagine that he would have come straight off after his clash with Bobby Lennox early on. Instead, he had to go and basically sit up front, and he was just a lame duck. So there are lots of weird little incidents peppered throughout, but the big one obviously is Baxter's keepy-uppies, isn't it? I mean, the, that's what the game's famous for. If you ask most people about the Scotland England game in 1967, I am quite confident not many of them could tell you the score line yeah. they know scotland won yeah. but they might not be able to say it was 3-2 but they will know
1: jim baxter's keepy-uppies. that's yeah. what it's famous for yeah 100 and getting to watch it was just incredible wasn't it um so there was an unpre- unprecedented demand for tickets uh for the game There was no my or anything like that back in those <laughs> days so the attendance just been over ninety thousand. i found it absolutely mental to even comprehend a stadium where there's double the amount of supporters mm. than a normal day at Ibrox but of course the, the fans famously rushed the, the pitch at the end of the game but just from a, from a modern football perspective what would an atmosphere have been like back then compared to a game nowadays would it have been much different or certainly very passionate
0: yeah. um, obviously most people would be standing as well but I think it would just be more or less the same as we have now just noisier and yeah, yeah just everything ramped up to 11 effectively, the old, uh, spinal, I, tap. The old spinal tap, Yeah, <laughs> I, I spoke to a few people who were at the game and yeah some of their stories are great but they, they just describe it as being well that was the norm for us back then yeah. to be surrounded by 90 odd thousand people so I often I look back at it now and I wish I'd spent more time with them to say well you go to games these days what's it like being in a stadium that's half as full as that Yeah. so but I mean, you get you get ninety thousand very very passionate fans there. The the, the interesting thing is that, it, according to a lot of the players on both sides, it felt like there were more Scots there than English yeah. supporters. So maybe there's something in that. Maybe they're Maybe the English fans were just a bit more quiet. I don't know. But it's it's funny when you listen back to it, you can hear a lot of Scottish singing and you know yeah. all the famous Scottish anthems that are, that are being sung. So. Yeah, just uh, an amazing spectacle to look at as well to see that many fans in such yeah. a small space.
1: Yeah, so we've already talked about the, the Scotland manager our next rangers goalkeeper Bobby Brown. The next part of the interview I would like to talk about is, is focus a wee bit more on on Rangers. Seeing as we're yeah, here, it'd be of course. It mustn't not to do so. Um, so we sit here in the, the magnificent new Rangers Museum. We round the corner from us, there's the the world eleven shirt from from Jim mm-hmm. Baxter, Slim Jim. Um, I couldn 't believe the condition that it was in yeah. how amazing it looked all the caps but um yeah so what what was Jim Baxter's contribution to that game? you already touched about it, but how important and integral was was he to that that team
0: well, the funny thing is that his place was very much in doubt leading into the match he'd been in pretty indifferent form and that's true for a lot of Baxter's career i think we yeah. We kind of mythologize people like Baxter and so on, and we forget that they had slumps. You know, there were times when they weren't playing to their best. Mm-hmm. Their best was exceptional, but the standards came and went. Mm-hmm. And yeah, certainly at that time, he wasn't playing especially well. And there was some speculation, certainly in the Scottish media, that he wouldn't be picked. There was also a real feeling among some in Scottish media that the side should be comprised solely of Scottish-based players. Leave out the so-called Anglos, which means you're leaving out Baxter, who was at Sunderland. He's leaving out Billy Bremer. I mean, how do you leave out Billy Bremer? <laughs> yeah. Dennis Law, who would have yeah. walked into that England team, in my opinion. So, yeah, Baxter, in particular, his place was very much in, the, in doubt. But I think he showed the commitment that he had to the team and certainly to, to that. Match mm-hmm. to righting a wrong, if that's what it was for Scotland. When the previous weekend he came up and did private training with, I think it was Walter McRae, one of uh, Bobby Brown's assistants, and they went to Rugby Park and he just did one-on-one training for the entire day and yeah. basically proved, you know what, I'm I'm ready, I'm fit, and I really want to play in this game. So. On reflection, it's probably just as well he did because yeah. he was metronomic in, in the match. Yeah. Just total composure. As far as I can remember, he I can't really recall him misplacing too many passes and just dictated the tempo of the play from a, 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 a deeper position than I think most people would
1: expect him to occupy. And yeah. he was just he was pulling all the strings. Yeah, he was he was the big player for, for the big game, but Out of everyone in the book, I certainly found that he seemed to have the most amount of stories Mm -hmm. (laughs) and lots of tales. Is there any that that stood out to you? Is there any particular favourites you've got? Oh yeah, I mean,
0: (laughs) trying to pick your your favourite Jim Baxter story is like trying to pick your favourite Ranger of all time or your favourite Ranger shirt. I mean, there are so many to choose from. I, I still find it quite funny that on the day that he signed his contract with the club, having moved from Wraith Rovers, he signed the contract in the morning, and then within a couple of hours was out shopping for a brand new Jaguar. <laughs> Not because he wanted to show off or anything like that. Because if I'm I'm big time Jim, it was to impress the girls. You know. Yeah. That's, yeah. He thought, well, I'm now a Rangers player, so I might as well drive a car that's going to attract all the ladies. Yeah. Um, he the the, the the stories about his his off the field persuasions are well known. <laughs> um, we we know about the battles that he's faced and. The, the tragic consequences of right. that <laughs> so yeah you like to drink yeah. but it's it's quite funny when you look at this one but his favorite watering hole I gather was the St. Enoch Hotel and he would go there regularly before games after games before training after training and he started to just sign a tab away to the club like just right I I drank that much send the tab back to the club and for the most part I think they just put up with it I don't know if there was an agreement in place that all right Jim fine we'll cover it up to a certain amount or or what the the deal was but he got away with it for a while then the club cottoned on said right no more charging drink back to us Jim (laughs) so instead to get round that he started forging the signature of his teammates (laughs) And it was only rumbled when Davy Wilson got called in by the management and said, "Look, you've you've just signed this amount away from the hotel. Yeah. You're going to have to cover that." And Wilson goes, "Well, couldn't it have been me." I'm like, what do you mean it couldn't have been you? He says, "Well, I'm T total. So <laughs> how could it have been?" Yeah. So yeah, Baxter got up to all sorts. Uh, I, I wish I wish I'd written the book twenty twenty five years ago, so I could have spoken to him about it and you really got his memories. We've been able to cobble together some, but yeah, what a, a, a total one off. And he sums himself up really well in his own book when he said that everything he did was spontaneous. It was off the cuff.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's, that's just tons of personality and tons of talent, isn't it?
1: So Jim Baxter, he finishes Rangers career with three league titles, three Scottish Cups and three League Cups. He was good enough to be selected for, for the World of living. Mm-hmm. He was playing alongside players like French Pus- Ferenc Puskas Lev Yashin, uh, Alfredo De Stefano, and obviously he's really, really fondly remembered by Rangers supporters. Where would you rate Jim Baxter? And I know this is a difficult <laughs> question in the sort of echelons of, of Scottish uh, football in, in, in the history of Rangers as well.
0: In terms of sheer talent, he's right up there, isn't he? I mean, yeah. the fact that we're still talking about him today, that tells you that he was special, that he was different, and that yeah. first and foremost, he was divinely talented. With the greatest of respect to the other guys that were in that Rangers squad at the same time as he was, the early 60s, name five of them. You <laughs> yeah. know, unless you're a real diehard Rangers fan, as I'm sure some people listening and watching this will be, yeah. it's back so that it stands out. You remember the greats because they're great. I know that sounds really obvious, but you do. You remember the best players because of the best players. I grew up idolizing Brian Loudrup. You know, yeah. I could probably tell you six or seven of the guys that he played alongside, but if I... I would have to think long and hard about it. Yeah. So, to answer your question, where does Jim Baxter fit? I think he would absolutely walk into a greatest Rangers eleven, yeah. and I think that he would have a really, really good case of being in a greatest Scottish eleven as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent answer to that question. I think on, on talent he is he is one of the best that this country's ever produced. But speaking of greats as well, the next uh, player I want to talk about is mm-hmm. the greatest ever Ranger, and that's John Gregg. How much do you think, obviously he was captain for that game, how much do you think his um, time as captain at Rangers um, and how much did that affect the... Sorry, I'll start that again as well. Move on to the, the greatest ever Ranger now in John Gregg. Obviously he was captain of the, the squad that defeated England in 1967. How much do you think an influence of his time as, as Rangers captain did that have on, on that Scotland squad?
0: Massive. You know, he was... As you say, he was the captain of the the team in that match. And look at the players that he was captain. You know, Dennis Law, Jim Baxter, Billy Bremner. I mean, any one of them potentially could have been the the Scotland captain on that day. But I know they'd experimented with having different players as captain in the, the years leading up to that match. But the way I always think about it is Jock Steen, when he was a Scotland manager late 60s, sorry, late 65, he made... John Craig, his Scotland captain, Now, what does that tell you when you're surrounded by the likes of Billy McNeil and so on? I think everybody knew and understood what John Craig brought to the the team, brought to the dressing room, brought to the environment. He is absolutely the greatest Ranger ever in my opinion and just a, a natural leader. I can't think of anyone that you would rather have had leaders out there against
1: England on that day. Uh, a wee extra about the, the book that I really enjoyed Michael was, was the appendices at the back I could sit <laughs> and genuinely read all that stuff all day um, You obviously put loads and loads of research into the book, I imagine that you've seen stuff that nobody else has seen, mm-hmm. stuff that nobody's seen in years and obviously you were fortunate enough to to talk to some of the, the surviving members of the squad.
0: As I say I wish I'd done it years and years ago when more of the players on both sides were still alive uh, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to explore the English side a little bit more, but there were only three players alive when I started writing the book. There's only two now. Uh, One of them, Bobby Charlton's not very well, and it's a similar deal on the Scotland side. You know, Bobby Lennox isn't, you know, as far as I'm aware, doesn't like to do too much in public these days. He stepped back, uh, has some of his his own battles, I believe. Uh, Dennis Law's health has been well documented. So I'd have loved to have spoken to more of them but you, you, you can't turn back time, obviously. Jim McCallag, though, I'm so grateful for his hospitality. He lives just in the outskirts of Glasgow, obviously the match winner as well, yeah. and a lovely, lovely man who had a really underrated career. Played pretty much exclusively in England, you know, and he played alongside some great players, you know, at Chelsea, Ron Chopper Harris, Terry Venables, uh, George Graham. He was managed by Don reevey He was managed by Tommy Doherty. And then obviously goes to to Sheffield Wednesday and did really well there too. So he's a wonderful man. And it it was was strange actually because we were having a really good conversation about the match and he remembers everything so clearly, so vividly. And I asked him to, to describe the goal that he scored in as much detail as he possibly could. And he spoke for about 10 minutes without coming up for air. And then he just sort of paused and his eyes filled up. And his voice trembled and you could just tell even now, like 55 years later, 56, just how much it meant to him to to score and to, to play yeah. in that game. The emotion was so vivid and raw. But on his wall, he's also got a, a picture of him with Dennis Law shaking hands earlier in the week because Sheffield Wednesday had played Manchester United midweek. Yeah. So the squad had been announced by that point and colleague shakes hands with Dennis Law, they had their picture taken, and he's got the the picture on his wall, framed, signed by Dennis Law. Oh. And uh, it's just, you, you look at that and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's, it's an amazing bit of memorabilia from a, a match that means so much to so many people.
1: Yeah. And listen, I think that's a really great place to to end today's very, very insightful interview, Michael. Um, It's one of the most important, if not the most important game, arguably, in Scottish football in history. i got to say, really well done in the book. It really was a fantastic read. I am not a massive reader but I could not put it down at points. Um if you just want to tell everybody watching and listening where can they grab it from?
0: Yeah, sure so it's on sale now from all good book shops, some bad ones as well I'm sure. <laughs> and it's online, you can get it from Polaris Publishing who have uh, published the book. Obviously Amazon as well if you want to go there. And you're quite right. I mean it's it's you look back that game in 67 that's that's probably the biggest and single the single most important match in Scottish football history. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I'm so excited for the opportunity when we stop talking about it <laughs> and when we have something else to celebrate. I feel like the, the squad of players that we've got just now are, are capable of, of pushing us on and whatever the next success is, presumably qualifying out of the group stages of a major international tournament, that's got to be the next step. Yeah. So I'm excited for people to go out and read the book. I'm excited for the point when we stop talking about 67 and, and that team,
1: but hopefully in a couple of months we've sold a
0: few copies.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But listen, thanks for coming down here today for giving this interview for, for this. this Is on It has been a real pleasure genuinely talking to you and taking all this stuff in this museum. Uh, I've got to say a huge thank you to the guys at Pod- Podcast Studio Glasgow. Thanks, Cammy. Thanks, Mark. Um, and a massive thank you for the club for allowing us to mm. film in this amazing location. Uh, if you've not been down here, guys, come down and check it out because it really is phenomenal. And finally, Thanks to you guys watching and listening there. So take care. Sports Social Podcast Network.